Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Philip Lopate was on our show last November to discuss the first of a three-volume set of books devoted to the American essay. It covered works from colonial times to the present. The second volume has just been published by Anchor Books, and this one includes 38 essays from the three decades that followed World War II, when many of our country's finest writers addressed the problems that were confronting mid-century America racism, sexism, the nuclear threat, war, poverty, environmental degradation. Philip Lopate is a professor of writing at Columbia University, and over the course of his career, he has published poetry, fiction, and a number of volumes of essays. He has edited, written the introduction, and provided headnotes to all of the entries in this new collection, which is titled The Golden Age of the American Essay, 1945 to 1970. And if his last name sounds familiar, well, I'm very proud to say he's also my brother. Hi, Philip. Welcome back to our show. Hello, Lenny. Um, or is it Leonard? Which would you prefer? I prefer Leonard. Okay. But okay. Well, um, and I call you Philip. It's a pleasure to be uh, interviewed by the best interviewer on the radio. Oh. Aw, shucks. Um, have there been certain periods when there's been an outburst of great essay writing? For example, yes, think, the mid-19th century, uh, which was uh, a large part of your previous book? Definitely. I think that the essay uh, is, is, a, is an art form which uh, becomes popular uh, at certain periods and then kind of uh, uh, disappears or becomes uh, commercially unviable. And, and it, it's very tied to the historical circumstances. On the other hand, you note that there's something suspect about the notion of a golden age. Yes, well, um, it, basically, I wanted to collect essays in the post-war era. And um, it occurred to me that uh, I could group them under the title of the golden age, uh, though, you know, that, that is a kind of a opportunistic label. Um, <laughs> When in fact, uh, you know, it 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 it, seem, it it reeks of a certain kind of um, uh, nostalgia. Um, as it happens, uh, we're going through a good period for essay writing right now. So let's just say uh, that it was a period uh, that was very very hospitable to essay writing. Well, I was wondering whether why there isn't a flowering all the time. Aren't there always interesting things to write about? Yes, I think so. Um, uh, always and 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 since I am a kind of champion of the essay, um, I, I myself am always finding uh, good essayists uh, in every period. Um, but that but there are certain times when uh, when nobody even thinks of it as an essay; they just think of it as something that needs to be said. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, uh, uh, James Baldwin's uh, "The Fire Next Time" or Norman Mailer's "The Prison of Sex." Uh, Nobody thought, oh, these are interesting essays. They thought uh, these were these were hot topics that needed to be explored. Uh, they were very topical, um, and so so that issue of topicality um, is one that um, that that subsumes the whole question of the essay as a genre. Well, the essays in this book cover a wide range of topics. Might reading these essays give us as complete a picture of those times as reading a history book? They, they, I think they certainly would would complement a, a history book, um, and 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 that wide range was was quite intentional. 
because I wanted to show how essays can be uh, can occur in almost every discipline, um, not just in belles lettres or by literary authors. Um, so, for instance, I I included uh, an essay by the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr. Mm-hmm. I included an essay by uh, by the science writer Lauren Isley. Um, I included an essay by by the poet and dance critic Edwin Denby, uh, just to show, uh, in a way, part of the range of essays. And 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 even when I included uh, literary writers like uh, uh, John Updike, I have his essay on sports on Ted Williams. So I wanted to show how the essay could really, um, uh, how flexible it was. Let's say, you know, how it could uh, pop up in so many different areas. And and these people were all very respected at the time. You write, it was a time when the figure of the public intellectual who would be ex- be expected to transmit and explain complex ideas was in ascension. Yeah, I mean, th- that's a curious um, issue, which is th- that, you know, in the post-war area, there was a great, great expansion of education, particularly uh, among the middle class, and and the middle class wanted to catch up uh, with culture and to know what was really um, what was what was really essential. So you had some of these um, village explainers, as Gertrude Stein would say, mm. um, like uh, like uh, Kenneth Rex Ross or John Ciardi, who held forth uh, in every issue of, of of the magazines that they were writing for, um, explaining about Dante's Inferno or uh, or Rabelais, uh, uh, Gargantua, and Pantagruel, and and so there was a um, there was a much more um, docile public willing to listen to public intellectuals than exists now. I think we're now going through a period of of uh, anti uh, specialists, uh, anti which is seen as a kind of anti elitism, you know, and and the public is much less willing to to sit still and be taught. There also seemed to have been an explosion of journals and magazines. Uh, there was a Partisan Review, Commentary, the Paris Review, Saturday Review, New York Review of Books, The New Leader, the Hudson Review, the Village Voice, the, the New Yorker, and a number of them have ceased publishing in the years after. Yeah, that's certainly true. That There's no question that, um, that one of the um, pillars that was supporting um, this uh, this blossoming of essays uh, was the proliferation of uh, of magazines, um, and it's not just the the the, the small literary journals uh, or the or, or, or you know magazines like the New Republic and the Nation. It was also um, newspapers. You know, magazines like Playboy would publish uh, mm-hmm. essays. You know, um, and Esquire. Esquire. Esquire was very very. Uh, very, very important in terms of uh, supporting uh, writers uh, uh, like Leonard Michaels and William Styron and so on. And, and some of these magazines uh, would, would, um, would send writers out uh, to cover events. They would send writers like Gore Vidal or Norman Mailer uh, to political conventions and, and, and pay them quite a lot of money, uh, which, of course, encouraged them to write. And I'm looking over that list that I just mentioned, only a few are still doing that. Well, we have the New York Review of Books continuing. Mm-hmm. Um, the New Yorker is not what it was. Commentary became moved politically to a very different place. 
-hmm. So um, it's much more limited today. Yes, it's much more limited because a lot of a lot of uh, of these uh, magazines don't know how to monetize, uh, and mm -hmm. uh, and certainly the internet has uh, uh, had a big effect in in cutting off their revenues. Um, so you know we're left with a few newspapers like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal that have figured out how to do that. Yeah, with op-eds now. Would you consider the op-ed to be the equivalent of an essay? Yes, I, I think that uh, not only the op-ed column, not only the op-ed page, but 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 columnists themselves uh, mm. can write good essays. You know, you take someone like like Russell Baker, who who could you know do something that was um, that was charming and pointed in 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 three hundred words. You know, uh, so yes, uh, I I do think that the op-ed has become uh, a source. And, and and I do think that, for instance, the New York Times continues to 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 run essays, uh, especially in their um, week in review section. And the magazine. Um, and the magazine, now, exactly. The, the, the period we're discussing, 1945 to 1970, was also a time when the United States was making its mark in all of the arts, right? Uh, movies, music, painting, sculpture. Yes, and, and so that's It was a great I, flowering. Yeah, that's why I included uh, Clement Greenberg, uh, uh, kind of a controversial art critic, you know, writing mm -hmm. about um, uh, uh, flatness in modern art, and and I included uh, Edwin Denby uh, writing about um, about the dance. It was it was really a wonderful period for the arts. Of course, jazz was in, was was uh, important. Maybe the maybe the signal art of that period. Um, and I think, and I have an essay by by. Um, Albert Murray about jazz and blues. Um, you know, it's interesting because to some degree, the period of the post-war is sometimes put down as a, um, as a bland time, you know, like the Eisenhower years uh, are, are, you know, discussed as a kind of a age of conformity and so on. And yet the arts were really, uh, were really uh, fantastically having, you know, breakthroughs at this period. You think about yeah, in, uh, paint, in painting, you have the abstract expressionists. Yes. Uh, in jazz, you have uh, bebop, okay. Charlie Parker, and then even in pop music, you go from uh, blues and doo wop to things like the Beatles. Yes, exactly. And then you then you have uh, in dance, you know, you have uh, 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 Balanchine and Russ Cunningham, uh, and a whole new way of doing dance that was really more like walking than than uh, than old fashioned ballet. And all of that becomes uh, grist for the mill of these essays. Yes, because the S the essays could comment on anything, and 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 it was a period when when you know some of the uh, the intellectuals uh, and writers like Mary McCarthy or Leslie Fiedler um, would would write in a place like the Partisan Review. Um, one issue they'd be writing theater criticism. The next issue they'd be writing about. The Rosenberg case, you know, or the Alan yeah. his case. So, you know, they were they, they, they had great they, they were looked up to. They were expected uh, to comment about all these things. So the essayists, in a sense, were also major figures. We were interested in finding out what they were thinking about what was going on in the world. Yeah. I mean, I think especially if you think about uh, the group that was called the New York Intellectuals, um, they, they were they were uh, very um uh, outspoken, uh, 
combative and even show-off, you might say. Um, uh, many of them were Jewish and they, they, they were, um, you know, uh, the children of immigrants and they were trying to elbow their way uh, into, uh, into the, the mainstream culture. And, and, uh, and the essay became one of the main ways they could do that. Now, although you only have one emigre essayist here, Vladimir Nabokov, uh, this was a time when a lot of uh, uh, intellectuals from Europe came to live in the United States and were writing. Some of them were included in the previous book. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that the, that the uh, influence well, of these emigres like uh, Hannah Arendt and uh, Thomas Mann and Nicola Curamanti um, really raised the bar of, of intellectual discourse. You know, they, they set a standard. And, and, and the, na the Native born American writers thought, you know, um, we got to do something as cosmopolitan uh, and as intellectually complex as these immigrants. I'm talking on Leonard Lopate at Large today here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org with Philip Lopate, whose latest work is uh, his editing of a collection of 38 essays under the title The Golden Age of the American Essay, 1945 to 1970. Haven't there been many proposed definitions over the, the past few centuries about what an essay is by a wide range of thinkers? Has anybody been able to agree on a consist, consistent definition? No, absolutely not. Um, I do think it's a, it's a form that... Um, uh, in a strange way, it's never had the kind of um, uh, theoretical um, uh, probing and agreement that, let's say, poetry has with its studies of prosody or, or fiction has with its studies of narratology. So this gives, this gives the essayist greater freedom because, in a way, the, the essay is like a bird that's never been pinned down, you know? And so, well, essay so, comes from the French word to try. So that's right. that, exactly. that that's a lot gives it a lot of leeway. Exactly. In that sense, the essay is very experimental. You know, it's it's always something that um, that, that that is an attempt, um, and that that does give it a greater freedom. In a funny way, the essay the essay is never as as pure or perfect as, let's say, the poem. Uh, but that, I, I'm a great believer in impurity, actually. You know, I like the idea that, that, uh, that, the, that very often the essayist starts out not really knowing where he's going to go or she's going to go, and then they follow their thoughts, and, and that, that exploration of their thoughts uh, becomes the story, becomes the plot of the essay. But haven't many tried to limit the definition of what an essay should be, and haven't there been many predictions of the death of the essay? Yeah, well, in terms of limiting the, the what the essay is, um, there, there are some people who who have clung to the idea of the essay as a kind of um, well, what Cynthia Elzig said: it's not a it's not a um, it's not a dogmatic, it's not um, uh, necessarily a a logical argument. It's a mazy um, walk through one's thoughts, through one's brain. Um, and and so, the, in other words, it's, there's something uh, charming and and um, and non um, non well, you know, Arpe Blackmore said it was an unindoctrinated, unindoctrinated form. Um, 
So let's say the essay is not something that um, that that is um, pressuring you in any way. Uh, that's one definition of the essay. Uh, so some people think the essay has to have a logical argument. Some people think it must not have a logical argument. Yeah. Not 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 be dogmatic in any way. Um, Susan Sontag I, I, describes it as trying to figure work things out. Yeah, in her some, in her essay. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, uh, I I'm sort of I'm sort of pushing for the big tent theory of the essay, which is um, you know um, one too many kinds of essays. You know, uh, so so let's have essays as I as I explained in my first volume, uh, the glorious American essay. Uh, they're essays in the form of a letter, uh, like like Frederick Douglass's uh, letter to his to his uh, or to his uh, master, or for instance, uh, Martin Luther King's uh, letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, mm -hmm. they're, so they're essays uh, uh, that are in the form of a rant, let's say. And I have an essay by uh, by the wonderful writer Seymour Krim in the Golden Age of the American Essay called "Making It," um, in which he kind of uh, uh, expresses all his his uh, bile and bitterness at the idea of uh, of uh, make of the of making it in american uh, in american terms you know uh, being a winner as opposed to a loser um, so you know the, there are essays in the form of sermons um, because in some ways the essay uh, is derived from the sermon and uh, that's why i included in my first volume essays by uh, an essay by jonathan edwards um, so yes, I like the idea of, of of expanding the notion of what an essay is rather than contracting it. Well, let's talk about that American aspect. Uh, the essay is an ancient form, but as the editor of a number of collections of American essays, do you find that it's a form that lends itself to American sensibilities in particular? Yes, I do, and I think it has something to do with the the aspiration toward democracy. You know, America itself is an experiment. The essay is an experiment, um, and you know we're always we're always trying to complete the experiment of democracy. Although obviously there's a lot of opposition um, in places like Georgia right now and Texas. Um, so, in a funny way, the, Ameri the the essay is something that uh, anybody can write. You don't have to be um, upper class. You don't have to be an aristocrat. Uh, you know, all you have to do is be willing to have your say, uh, and so not only not only uh, is it is it something that is for uh, those who are in the mainstream, but for instance, uh, minority groups have always availed themselves of the essay. Mm. Uh, black writers, for instance, um, feminists, um, any group that considers itself uh, marginal or on the outside, and is eager to define themselves uh, comes to the essay because the essay is a is a, is a particularly hospitable way uh, to work out one's identity. Uh, it, since you brought up the whole idea of the concept of democracy, in his 1947 essay, The Dilemma of Liberal Democracy, Walter Lippmann wrote that George Washington, quote, believed that the people should rule, but he did not believe that because the people ruled, there would be freedom, justice, and good government. Washington realized that there was no guarantee that the rule of the people would not in its turn be despotic, arbitrary, corrupt, unjust, and unwise. That's something we are still debating to this day. 
Exactly. The whole the whole notion of populism, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean um, uh, justice or, or good governmental policy, you know. And I included Walter Lippmann because he was somebody who had enormous influence in his day. Uh, millions of readers read him uh, in his columns in the in the Herald Tribune and elsewhere. Um, and now he seems to have have disappeared from the from the consciousness uh, because uh, America is so gifted in its amnesia, you know. Um, <laughs> so, so I I I do think that obviously. Um, Living through the the Trump years, you know, you have to wonder, uh, uh, you know, whether whether the people are always right. Well, another example is uh, that uh, is Richard Hofstetter's 1964 essay, "The Paranoid Style in American Politics." It seems relevant again today, and it he identified the paranoid style of politics characterized by quote, heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, and conspiratorial fantasy, and inflamed by mass media. He yes. wrote, the villains of the modern right are much more vivid than those of the par their paranoid predecessors, much better known to the public. The literature of the paranoid style is by the same t token richer and more s circumstantial in personal description and personal invective. Gee, that could have been written yesterday. Yeah, I mean, that essay, The Paranoid Style, which I included, um, has been quoted, you know, endlessly uh, in recent times, uh, you know, and it's a very sharp essay and unfortunately um, incredibly relevant if you think about uh, groups like QAnon, for instance, um, you know, how, how, how much purchase paranoia has on the American imagination. Although you began as a writer of poetry and fiction, you say that you found that with essays you could combine the storytelling impulse of fiction with the associational lyrical aspects of poetry, uh, and uh, that uh, it, it allowed you to be confessional and also mischievous. Well, I'm assuming you could do that in poetry and fiction as well. Yes. Well, you, you certainly you certainly know me very well, <laughs> Leonard. Uh, so, yeah. You know, uh, what can I say? I, I, I do think that uh, when I stumbled on the essay as a form for myself, um, I, uh, I found a voice, essentially. I found mm -hmm. that I could always um, uh, cobble together this Philip Lopez character um, who, would, who would mouth off about something um, and, 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 and hopefully uh, have some fun doing it. Um, and that's where that that's where the mischief comes in. Um, but you know, I, I I was trying in my introductions to these volumes uh, to write an essay that would, in a sense, model some of the the um, the aspects of the essay, like uh, skepticism, uh, doubt, self skepticism, ambivalence, and so on. Although many of them assumed a formal intellectual tone. Why were these writers at that time concerned with tone? Did they were they concerned about being taken seriously? Oh, definitely. I think I think it's a curious thing that at this moment, we'll say 1945 uh, to through to 1960, um, the, the, there was a sort of a agreement uh, about uh, what an 
what the tone of an essay should be, that it should have a certain kind of formal quality, a certain kind of gravitas. Um, and um, I think that had something to do with, uh, with uh, these writers trying to, uh, to establish authority. Uh, because, uh, you know, you may not be a specialist. Um, so how do you establish authority as an essayist? One of the ways you do it is by, by, by the texture and tone of your essay, so that even though you, you may not be a scientist like Lauren Isley, um, you may be taken more seriously if you can write a, a, a kind of, um, if you can write sentences uh, that, that, that cohere and, and that deserve respect. Uh, you know, someone like Elizabeth Hardwick, for instance, whose every sentence, um, uh, you know, has this, uh, has this tensile strength, you might say. Um, so, and then what happened, uh, curiously enough, was that starting in the 60s, um, there was a rebellion against this formal tone. Uh, some of it was coming from the new journalists like uh, Hunter Thompson and, uh, and uh, Tom Wolfe, uh, Seymour Krim. Uh, you know, they wanted a more colloquial style. They wanted a more uh, uh, like a, a kind of um, a gutter snipe style. Um, uh, and, and, um, and they wanted to, uh, to really uh, uh, reach the reader in a more accessible way. Uh, so that became a challenge to the formal lesson. Represented in this book are critics, sociologists, theologians, historians, activists, theorists, humorists, even a, a few poets and novelists, right. and pretty much all of them quite famous at the time. But how did you, uh, how did you wind up picking them? In, in some cases, uh, they're quite famous, like uh, the, um, the Nabokov or the Martin Luther King essay, but others uh, are, seem less famous versions by, by famous people. Uh, uh, yes, people. Well, did you just have to uh, spend a lot of time looking through essay collections uh, over the last few years? Oh, I read so many. I read so many books, um, and uh, essentially, uh, I had to love the essay. That's one thing. So, um, you know, I couldn't put in an essay that I that that, that didn't move me or that I disliked. Um, uh, you know, I would be reading various books and then suddenly uh, one essay would stand out and I'd say, Eureka, you know, this mm -hmm. has to go in. Um, you also say that you, uh, you pass some of them by your students at Columbia. Yeah. Well, they were, they were the canaries in the mind, you know, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I taught uh, some of these essays, you know, and, and, um, you know, and occasionally I teach an essay and the students were completely uh, indifferent to it. And then I think, well, maybe I shouldn't, Put that one in, you know. Um, but then there were essays that were that were a little bit controversial, uh, like for instance Lionel Trilling's essay on uh, on Lolita, which I thought made a very good conversational counterpart with Nabokov's own uh, essay on Lolita. And of course, uh, uh, you know, there were students who thought that um, um, any uh, any defense of Lolita, even one like Trilling's, which was so hedged in with qualifications, um, you know, was, was intolerable. Um, they didn't like Lolita? It's a masterpiece. It, it may What's be happened? Well, we won't, we won't get into that. The issue, of course, <laughs> pedophilia, you know, um, yeah. you know, was, was, was very prominent. 
Um, well, well, he wasn't promoting pedophilia. He was writing no. from the mind of a, of a screwed up person. Exactly. And both he and uh, Navikov and his wife, Vera, said, we don't we don't like Humbert Humbert. You know, uh, mm -hmm. we, we are not defending Humbert Humbert. Um, and then there's I put in an essay by by Paul Goodman uh, called The Universal Trap. Goodman was so important uh, and, and well known in the culture of the 60s, for instance, uh, especially because of his book Growing Up Absurd, um, but now seems to have been largely forgotten. And so I felt like I wanted to rescue people uh, who were who were being forgotten and who were so important. And, and, and Goodman was sort of like the last of the generalist intellectuals. I mean, you yourself are a generalist in a way. Um, he, was, he, he could write about anything. Um, and he wrote this essay in which he basically questioned the whole notion of, uh, of universal schooling. And he said, maybe not every, not, you know, maybe we're, we're, we're imprisoning all these young people in schools and, and maybe that's not the best use for their energies. Hmm. Well, <laughs> right now we're going through an experiment along those lines. Sure. Uh, too bad we can't do an evaluation. He can't do the evaluation. Did uh, these, all of these people, pretty famous, read and critique each other and engage in some form of dialogue? They, they they certainly did, and I think that um, that's a that's that's an aspect that is rather different from from the 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 young essayists who are writing now. Um, so, for instance, uh, you have Harold Rosenberg um, uh, saying some very um, critical things about uh, Lionel Trilling and Robert Warshaw, um, and and um, they 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 would take they would take. Um, uh, Pot shots at each other, um, but you know, and and that's certainly true. For instance, of Irving Howe, um, who criticized a lot of the uh, of the uh, widest intellectuals of his day. Irving Howe thought that uh, that the intellectuals were were selling out, um, that they that that they were um, that they'd been bought and sold by by Madison Avenue and the universities, uh, and were no longer being as critical of American society as they should be. Um, but in a way, uh, that just meant that uh, ideas were taken seriously because um, they, they, were, they were really uh, fighting each other in public. Which I well, don't most think of them, most of them were now. liberals, weren't they? Yeah, well, a lot, a lot, of, these, a lot of these writers were liberals. Um, and I make the point um, in the introduction to the Golden Age of the American Essay that there was a certain um, overlap, you might say, uh, or a synchronicity between uh, uh, the the liberal uh, consensus of the time and 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 the practice of essay writing, and uh, that both of them were seeking a middle way, um, uh, not revolution, uh, and 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 were tolerant, uh, and and you might say um, uh, open to. Uh, open to criticizing themselves, open to skepticism. Uh, I, I, I took I took that idea partly from from Lionel Trilling, who said uh, at this point in, in this period that that there was a kind of liberal consensus. Um, so if you want to back up a little, I, I just want to explain that a bit. If you if you look at at the at the um, historical perspective of the time, 1945. And, and, and moving on into the post-war era, 
America had won the war uh, and they had, they had defeated the Nazis. That is, they, they, they had defeated a very um, uh, racist uh, and, uh, and, and bloody uh, regime. And, and so they became uh, the, the beacons for another kind of uh, idea for kind of tolerance. And this was a period when, you know, there was a lot of uh, uh, recognition, for instance, with, with black GIs returning uh, to, to a society that was still um, segregated, to a society that, was still, that still had racism, that this was the time to recognize uh, that, that, that we were all part of one family. Uh, you had that uh, photography show, The Family of Man. Um, and President so, Truman integrated the military. Exactly, exactly. Um, and this was a period when you had movies like Gentleman's Agreement uh, or Mary McCarthy's essay um, uh, uh, about um, anti-Semitism. This was a period uh, to, to defeat racism, to defeat anti-Semitism, uh, and, to, and, to, uh, and, and to argue for women's rights. Uh, so this was a period of, of a kind of liberal consensus. And also... Uh, let's face it. Uh, uh, the the uh, the left uh, had had given up to some degree uh, its uh, its dream of revolution because of the excesses of Stalinism. So you had a, a kind of uh, uh, anti-communist left, uh, which was essentially liberal. Uh, so there was a, there was a kind of a reigning ideology at that moment. Um, you might say a kind of a, uh, uh, almost a happy moment uh, uh, in in the sense of victory, uh, and it, it didn't last that long, which is curious, yeah. you know. Well, uh, we had, we wound up with the Cold War and and two uh, hot wars as well. But uh, I want to get back to that in just a moment. Remind our listeners that they're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Before we get back to my conversation with Philip Lopez about the golden years of, of the essay, I want to ask you to consider contributing to the station to help us survive the economic crisis that's been caused by the pandemic. We need all of our listeners who are financially able to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to help keep this show and the station on the air. Again, that number... 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And, and one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your fin financial commitment so that it's, it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member what we call a BAI buddy. BAI buddies are the backbone of our financial support here at BAI because they allow us to plan for the future and give the station and our show some sense of security during these uncertain times. Uh, you might also consider signing up as a BAI buddy for another listener who's had to suspend their, their membership due to financial hardship. And I am happy to announce 
that any listener who calls 212-209-2950 or goes to give to WBAI.org by the end of today and becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large will receive a free copy of the book that we are discussing, The Golden Age of the American Essay, 1945-1970, to edited by Philip Lopate. Just sign up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large today, and we'll make sure that you receive this wonderful anthology. But no matter what level you contribute at, it all helps to keep this show going. So I hope you'll support WBAI, the only 100% listener-supported radio station in New York. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And to everyone who's already donated, I thank you so much. And if you're going to do it, I thank you too. Uh, let's return to uh, my guest, Philip Lope, professor of nonfiction writing at Columbia University. Uh, his work includes an array of travel writing, film and architectural criticism, poetry, fiction, memoir, which has appeared in a wide range of periodicals. And he has a number of essay collections, including Bachelorhood, Against Joie de Vivre, Portrait Inside My Head. He uh, has received two Guggenheim Fellowships through National Endowment of the Art Grants, fellow at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And his latest project is a book he has edited called The Golden Age of the American Essay, 1945 to 1970. It's, it's uh, available from Anchor Books. Uh, there are some, well, uh, we, you've mentioned some of the names of the people who are here, and, and it's a wide range. We have novelists, we have uh people who wrote both fiction and nonfiction, uh, people who involved a wide range of activities like Martin Luther King, Rachel Carson. But one of the oddest ones, to me anyway, is Norman Mailer's essay about meeting Jacqueline Kennedy. It's, it's such a far cry from the naked and the dead and the executioner song. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to put in an essay. I didn't always want to put in the essay that, um, that was so clearly identified uh, with the writer. I wanted to find things that were, um, you know, a little less known. Um, and Mailer, in this essay, basically makes a very odd claim that he got Jackie Kennedy, he got Jack, JFK elected. Um, he did. <laughs> that he did, yes. You know, he, 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 he had that kind of um, megalomaniac streak, you might say, uh, of self-importance. Um, and at the same time, um, he also understood that uh, that that was that that was a, a crock that that was not true. Um, so and, and and you know he he was he was very drawn to celebrity. You know, uh, Mal and Mal and Monroe and and uh, and Jackie Kennedy. Um, and, and and in a way, he became a kind of interpreter of celebrity. Um, so in this essay, you know. He, he he goes mano a mano uh, with Jackie with Jacqueline Kennedy, um, and uh, I just think it's a real Mailer esque performance. And and I'll go I'll go further and say that I think that uh, Mailer uh, w is one of the most important uh, nonfiction writers uh, that we have in the American canon. Um, nonfiction? You know, Did he change his style? What? Well, I think Did I think that. He's one of the, you know, there was a bunch of writers, there were a bunch of writers in this period um, who liked to think of themselves as novelists, who wrote uh, essays, and who really, I think, were better at essay writing 
a nonfiction than they were at fiction. And I would include uh, 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 James Baldwin, Susan Sontag, uh, Mary McCarthy, uh, Gore Vidal, uh, Norman Mailer, uh, Joan Didion. Uh, they, they, you know, they, they, they created more vivid characters uh, from their own persona than they were able to do in, in their fiction. Um, and of course, fiction has a higher status uh, than 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 nonfiction. So, in a way, you could understand why uh, why they wanted to see themselves as as novelists. Um, I remember uh, talking to Susan Sontag about essay writing, and and she got very impatient and said, "Well, you know, um, you know, like I did that a while ago, but really, I see myself as a fiction writer." Well, you know. Susan Sontag's essays uh, are, are marvelous, and her novels are, are slog, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> you should write an essay on that. Um, you mentioned James Baldwin. His uh, essay in this collection, uh, Stranger in the Village, isn't about dealing with racism in America. No, it's about dealing with racism in Europe. But um, I think of I think of James Baldwin as as the as the the major uh, American essayist of the 20th century, just as I think of Walfold and Emerson as the major essay, American essayist of the 19th century. Uh, so, you know, Baldwin is the touchstone uh, uh, for essay writing, I think. His uh, essay is uh, about visiting a Swiss village where none of the 600 residents had ever seen a black man. Yeah, and they, and, and they touch his head, his hair, you know, like... Uh, like he's a freak of nature in a way, you know, uh, and he, he, you know, he he tries to he tries to understand this and he tries to figure out how much he can claim uh, the great works of Western civilization. How much uh, does he belong to them? How much not? Uh, again, it's a very it's a very well worked essay, you know, uh, and and I always include Baldwin in my anthologies because. Uh, you know, I love Baldwin as a writer. I'm speaking with Philip Lopate on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. His latest book, um, I hope you're writing other things as well, but this one is The Golden Age of the American Essay, 1945 to 1970, published by Anchor Books, for which he uh, um, supplied a, a wonderful introduction, as as you uh, pointed out, it reads like an essay, and also uh, the introductions to all of the the different pieces include the thirty eight pieces included. Um, I know this is a silly question to ask, but do you have personal favorites here, or are all of these thirty eight pretty equal in your mind? Uh, do I love all my children equally? <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. Um, Certainly, I, I, certainly, I like some more, more than others, um, but uh, but I, I I do I think they all have a certain spark. They all have a certain a certain validity. You know, I put in this essay uh, by George F. Kennan called "The Sources of Soviet Conduct." Um, this was a very controversial essay, in which he basically was warning the American public uh, that the Soviets. Um, did not necessarily have our best interests at heart. Um, and of course, uh, uh, the left hated this essay uh, and, and, and thought uh, to some degree that, that it had inspired the Cold War. 
uh, Kennan himself uh, claimed that he never advocated um, uh, any kind of war. Uh, he really, he really wanted America, in his opinion, to get its act together so that it would be so inspirational uh, that all the uncommitted nations would want to align themselves with the U.S. instead of with uh, Soviet Russia. Um, so, but I thought it was, I thought it was a, 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 a very good expression of the kind of uh, anti-communism of the moment. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the, 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 the intellectuals on the left were in a curious position because on the one hand, you know, they, you know, going through the whole McCarthy era, um, they, they felt um, obligated, uh, the brave ones at least, uh, to speak out against the uh, the sins of of McCarthyism uh, uh, and the hideous persecutions uh, that it unleashed. Uh, at the same time, uh, there was a kind of awareness that the that the U.S. Communist Party w- was kind of a was kind of conspiratorial in its in its construction, in its structure, uh, in its cells, let's say, and and in its uh, its. Uh, obedience uh, to uh, to the Kremlin's instructions. Uh, so, so this was something that, uh, you know, we, we could talk about for a long time in debate, but essentially I thought uh, maybe this uh, Kennan essay uh, uh, could be a good place to start the conversation. Well, actually, you start the book with James Agee's The Nation, Democratic Vistas from 1945. And it wasn't the sort of thing that I would have expected from the writer who gave us, let us all, let us now all praise, praise famous men and, and a death in the family. Well, don't forget that, that Agee was also a journalist and a highly prized journalist uh, by, by Henry Luce, for instance. And so... Uh, he was called upon uh, at various um, solemn moments, like the death of FDR, for instance, uh, to to uh, to write something that was um, uh, elegant and and appropriate. And so, uh, so at the end of World War II, uh, you know, he 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 was called upon to uh, to write something uh, this piece, Democratic Vistas. Uh, you know, the whole with a um, hope for the future. A hope for the future. I mean, one of the things uh, to remember at this period was that uh, the New Deal was really uh, something that was highly respected by writers and intellectuals. Uh, you know, some say that it's it saved uh, uh, capitalism's butt. You know, uh, but it really it really did a lot of good things. And so, uh, well, well, it allowed a lot of writers to be able to survive during a rough time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The WPA, you know, uh, uh, people like Richard Wright, for instance, uh, uh, who got a stipend, uh, or, or Saul Bellow, you know. Um, yes, exactly. They were in the employ of the New Deal. Uh, so A.G. wrote this uh, kind of, a, um, you might say, poem, almost prose poem, uh, to the moment uh, that, that was shot through with kind of like um, um, optimism and pessimism, a, a sense of the... Of, of, of the um, the, the uncompleted uh, experiments. Some of the other essays that grab me, just because uh, uh, they address issues that I, I find interesting, Irving Howe, uh, Irving Howe expressed a wariness of consensus in his essay, Age of Conformity, for example. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, I think that I think that a lot of the writers at this time saw themselves as gatekeepers. Um, mm. They were very threatened by mass culture. Uh, and uh, so there's a beautiful essay by Randall Durrell, uh, The Sad Heart at the Supermarket. Um, Irving Howe's essay is really is really um, uh, pregnant also. And uh, Dwight MacDonald, he uh, is concerned about the rise of pop culture, what he preferred to call mass culture. I think he was being a bit of a snob there. Yeah, he, he you know, he... He compared mass culture to chewing gum, something that was uh -huh. ubiquitous, you know, and under your foot, you know. Um, so, you know, I think that pop culture was very threatening uh, at this time. And, and you know, a, a few years later, let, let's say, uh, uh, you know, you, you suddenly had uh, rock critics, for instance, uh, who were writing intelligently about pop culture. Um, but but f during this moment, uh, there was a sense of like, what is all this stuff, you know, mass culture, you know, and, and it seemed like a kind of diluted form of high culture. Uh, Susan Sontag, uh, you know, uh, wrote some essays basically embracing rock culture, uh, saying in, a, in essence, the kids are all right, you know, this is, this is exciting, this is sexy, this is liberational. Um, and but her essay some, about camp is kind of ambivalent about camp and how and the role it played in society i think that sontag uh, claimed that she never she never really believed that that high culture like opera and ballet uh, could be unseated it just seemed it just seemed too uh too established and so you know 25 years later she said oh god what did i do you know like <laughs> and then, because pop culture essentially uh wiped out high culture um if you think of for instance leonard about uh some of the movies that were made in the in this period like in the, in the early 1950s you know sometimes it would be like a um a little uh uh something a ballet let's say or uh or uh, jose turby would be playing the piano you know um or or, or suddenly an opera singer like enzio pizza Pinza would do a, uh, an aria, you know. Um, there was a place for high culture in mass culture, and I think that's kind of disappeared. Well, there's also a lot of suspicion. There were a lot of noir films made at the time. So yeah. we, we, would go, <laughs> we were going back and forth, I, I assume. Uh, this is the second of three volumes. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you think that we're going through another golden age. Is that what the third volume is going to be all about? Absolutely. The third volume is called The Contemporary American Essay, and it's restricted to essays in the 21st century. Um, and I have to say that, um, that that was the hardest one for me to edit because, you know, if you're, if you're editing something about the, the 19th century, for instance, it's pretty clear uh, who who is important. Uh, Emerson who, was important. Emerson, Thoreau, uh, Margaret Fuller, uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Hawthorne, uh, you know, and uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and so on. You know, they, we, uh, you know, Frederick Douglass. We know who counts. Um, but you know, the 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 closer we get to the present moment. Uh, it's very hard to determine 
what is fashionable from what is enduring, you know? So all you can do as an anthologist, I think, is is place some bets, you know, and hope that uh, that uh, you are starting a kind of a conversation, if not a canon. Well, I look forward to receiving it. When is it going to come out? In August. Uh, so, so this year, um, there will be the Glorious American Essay, which is this big, fat uh, book, uh, 900 pages. Uh, the Golden Age of the American Essay, a slender 700 pages. Um, and and uh, the Contemporary American Essay, uh, another slender 700 pages. This, is, this was the limit that the publisher would allow me, uh, understandably. And then um, by October... The, the glorious American essay will also be in paperback, uh, so uh, so readers can purchase any of them in paperback at that point. Thank you so much for being on our show again, Philip Lopate. Uh, we've been talking about his the latest book that he's edited on the essay called "The Golden Age of the American Essay," published by Anchor Books. It's been, as always, a great pleasure, and uh, we'll be talking on the phone soon, I'm sure. Bye. Thank you, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, we hope that you'll leave your comments there so uh, on um, iTunes so that other people will discover our show. There are also links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult financial situation because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go online right now to give to wbai.org or call 212-209-2950 to help keep this 100% listener-sponsored community radio station alive. We're powered by your generosity alone. And, And one last time. If you'd like to get a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Golden Age of the American Essay, 1945 to 1970, edited by Philip Lopate, sign up today to become a BAI buddy, and we would love to send it to you free as our way of saying thanks for supporting the programming that we bring you every day on Leonard Lopate at Large. You can find out more at give to wbaiorg or by calling 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow when civil rights lawyer Jim Freeman will discuss his new book called Rich Thanks to Racism, How the Ultra-Wealthy Profit from Racial Injustice. We'll see you then.